Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. It's our future. It's time to come together. I want again to welcome you to the Commonwealth Club of California. I am Ann Clark, a member of the Environment and Natural Resources Forum, and your chair today. We are also welcoming our listening audience, and we invite everyone to visit us online at commonwealthclub.org. And we are also now being video filmed, and so you may see this presentation tonight on video. And I'd like to thank Greg Dalton for arranging that for us and our uh, wonderful camera person who is in the back standing on that precarious chair (laughs) um, for that. Uh, Tonight we have a very, very special program. It's a program about the national ocean policy and what is happening in terms of our policy as a nation towards our oceans. What's so interesting for me about this program is that I actually never even imagined that we didn't have an ocean policy, nor did I ever really know how extensive the oceans are that the United States have. Our ocean territory uh, of the United States is actually more than our land territory, and we have more ocean territory than any other country in the world. So we have a vast influence on our oceans, and yet we've never had a national ocean policy. Your speakers tonight are going to talk about what's happening in Washington at the White House to discuss and plan and have a national ocean policy the very first time that we will be doing this and how important it is that we have this program. So you're actually participating tonight through the Commonwealth Club being here for this discussion in national, the formation of a very critically important national policy. And I thank you for doing that. I thank you for being here. Our speakers tonight, we will begin with Julie Packard. Julie is the executive director of the Monterey Bay Aquarium, and she brings a great deal of experience about oceans and waterways and all the wonderful things that she has done at the Bay Aquarium. I think every one of us has been there at one time or other and loves the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Joining her is Sarah Chases, who is from New York, and Sarah is the um, coordinator for the National Natural Resources Defense Council Ocean Initiative and lead attorney. She has been working very hard on this national policy and working with people in Washington, D.C. And joining them from Texas is Michael Thuss. Michael brings a very different perspective in some ways than East Coast, West Coast. He has actually worked with the people in all of the five Gulf states. He is with the Texas Water Conservancy Conservancy Association, in which they're working on water issues that involve the five states, water, not only ocean water, but water resources. So he has a great deal of experience of working with the stakeholders, whether they're the Native American tribes, the fishermen, the economists, the politicians, all of the people who are directly involved in the waters of the Gulf. And now I'm sure you know that the Gulf is certainly very much center stage in the fact that we really, really need a national policy from what has been happening in the Gulf. 
And joining us also is our moderator, and I'm delighted to have him, is Warner Chabot. And Warner is with the California League of Conservation Voters, and he has a very long history with the Ocean Conservancy and being involved in ocean issues. So he is our very able moderator tonight, and welcome to Warner. And he's sitting right here, so you have to wave your hand, Warner. So... (laughs) So with that introduction, I'm going to turn it over um, and to Warner, and he's going to start us out for the evening. Thank you, Anne. We knew that we had a lot to try to cover, so just wanted to let you know that uh, each of the speakers is going to talk for about 10 minutes. We asked uh, Julie to kind of provide a little bit of the history and context of some of the problems of the ocean. Uh, we asked Sarah to kind of talk about the President Obama's proposed national ocean policy, and we asked Michael to talk about the implications of this policy on real people that are living in coastal communities. So it's sort of problems, solution, how it affects real people. Uh, we're going to go through that, uh, and each one of them will, will speak for about 10 minutes each. You have, uh, you're sitting on, or should be sitting on, uh, cards that have questions. If you want to, during the, the the discussion. If you write your questions down, if you have them, and we'll collect them, I'll, I will try to filter through them and try to see if we can answer as many of them as as possible. Um, and we'll do that right at the at the end of this, the talk. So we'll start with uh, Julie Packard talking about the history and context of the issues surrounding the oceans of the United States. Julie. Thank you, Warner. Well, I want to start by thanking the audience here with us tonight for taking the time, albeit only an hour, to talk about the critical issues facing our oceans. And it really is quite remarkable to consider, as as Anne has mentioned, that the ocean area under U.S. purview is bigger than the land that we inhabit, and yet we spend so little time talking about what's happening in our oceans and, and on our oceans. And of course, uh, today as we speak, we have a very visible ocean threat happening right now in the Gulf of Mexico, and um, I I hope we won't get too distracted with that, although I know that all of us will want to have a few remarks, and I'm sure it's on your minds. But as it turns out, oil spills like this one uh, are, of course, uh, the most visible thing happening in the oceans in terms of, of threats and conservation issues, but not the most critical and not the broadest, and and, um, it's really just a statement on um, how little attention we pay to the oceans that uh, this has really mobilized so much attention when, in fact, we should be attending to our oceans every single day. Well, I've been asked to uh, make some comments about what's happening in our oceans, and I had the privilege several years ago to serve on one of two national ocean commissions that was set up, that were set up to Um, take a look at what's happening with America's ocean waters, uh, examine the threats, and examine the state of our nation's capability to address those threats. And um, I would say right now, you know, uh, although we may have a lot in our minds in terms of immediate ocean conservation issues, the good news is we are poised to take some really important steps And creation of a national ocean policy is just one of those. But those of us who have been working really hard to get some movement on ocean conservation, uh, we've been waiting a long time. And we're really poised for some really positive things to happen. And and our other panelists will will share more specifics on those. Well, so what are the things that are happening uh, in in our oceans and coasts? And and how, how should we think about them? The Pew Commission and the National Commission on Ocean Policy spent, uh, each of them, nearly three years examining these issues, going around, hearing people around the country in a public hearing sessions, talking to scientists, fishermen, um, offshore oil industry folks, uh, people from all walks of life to really identify, you know, what's, what's happening in our oceans. And the Pew Commission kind of summarized the big issues in, in a, a series of categories that I'll just mention to provide an overview about the types of things that we need to address in our national ocean policy and with other measures. Well, the first one, perhaps, is the one that comes to mind uh, most easily to everyone, That is fishing. It's kind of the most basic thing we do to the oceans, extract living resources out of them. The state of our world's fisheries are um, truly in a crisis situation. Um, Not only are we not doing a good job managing our global fisheries, there are vast numbers of fish stocks for which the status is unknown, so we really are flying blind. we We don't know what's happening with them. Uh, the good news is, in the U.S., we have had fisheries management measures in place for many years. There are other nations that are even further ahead of us, 
um, and we're trying to do the right thing, but, but we have a long way to go. As many of you know also, um, it's not just about the fish being overfished, it's about bycatch or wasted catch, unwanted catch, whatever the names are, meaning that many times more uh, pounds of, of wasted catch is involved with many of the types of fish that we harvest, including species and, and other seafood in general, shrimp, etc. So these are all issues that are very serious, and, and we have a long way to go in addressing them. Uh, the, next, the next issue that uh, probably comes easily to everyone's mind is the basic conservation issue of pollution. Um, obviously, our coastal oceans are heavily polluted. They carry big loads of, of legacy chemicals, DDT, PCBs, um, these persistent chemicals that are going to be with us for a very long time. Um, those are very important to address. But uh, perhaps a, a newer issue and one that's even more insidious is the whole issue of, of nutrient pollution. And we'll hear more about that from, from uh, one of our panelists later. But as we all know, um, all of the nitrogen and, f and other fertilizers that we use every day are causing a, a huge impact on coastal oceans and causing actual um, massive dead zones um, off of our coasts where nutrients have caused the ocean life to bloom and become uh, depleted in oxygen, and so nothing lives there. Uh, we have, again, uh, pollution really is an example of something that uh, wherever you live, you know, all water flows to the sea eventually, and so this is something that people in the interior of the U.S. or wherever they are really need to attend to, and we have a, a massive job to do to raise awareness. Those of us who live on the coast, we think about the oceans, we see the oceans, we, we maybe can relate to what's happening, but uh, the, the sources of those impacts really uh, are, are, you know, involve everyone. The, the third kind of major issue that the Pew Commission and the National Commission identified is the whole issue of habitat alteration and coastal development. Here in California, with uh, 38 million people and counting, we know all about coastal development. We're pleased to, and privileged to have some really progressive laws here to try to keep it in check, but suffice it to say we've lost vast amounts of very critical coastal habitats that are important for wildlife, important for our commercial fisheries. Um, in California, uh, probably 95% of our coastal wetlands have been converted to urban and other uses. And the land use laws governing those are truly something that uh, need to be tightened up and, and need to be addressed. And this is something that both of these commissions uh, mentioned as, as an important, important issue. Uh, then next, of course, uh, perhaps the, the mother of all conservation issues, global climate change. Needless to say, the oceans are uh, suffering a huge impact from carbon pollution in our atmosphere. But it's not a story that you really hear much about. Uh, mainly when we talk about carbon pollution and global climate change, we hear about impacts to wildlife, impacts to human communities, sea level rise, uh, critical, you know, very critical issues for the future of humanity. Uh, but the changes in our oceans uh, are perhaps even more vast because, as it turns out, the oceans absorb a huge amount of the excess CO2 that we've admitted into the atmosphere over all of these uh, years. And so um, as that happens, uh, we, we owe them a big debt of gratitude because uh, without the oceans we'd be way worse off. But unfortunately, uh, that high level of CO2 that's been absorbed into our oceans is changing the ocean chemistry. And many of you may have heard about what's known as ocean acidification, which, which basically, simply put, means that ocean chemistry is becoming more acidic and it's having a huge impact, actually a measurable impact already on the ability of ocean organisms to create um, their calcium-based uh, cell walls from oysters and the, the animals we eat to the tiny plankton that drive the whole ocean food web. Well, finally, to kind of uh, link over to the, the rest of our, our session tonight, really the overarching issue that both of these commissions identify that's really in need of help is the critical underlying issue of ocean governance, how we govern our oceans. Here in the U.S., um, and my colleagues here have much more familiarity with the details because they work in the policy arena, but suffice it to say, um, our oceans are not managed in an integrated way in the U.S. They're managed by something like 140 different federal laws and 18 different agencies. We don't have a, a cabinet level, you know, a department of the oceans where everything's integrated and someone wakes up every day and thinks about 
you know, how's the health of our ocean doing in American waters? Um, is everyone working together? Are things integrated? And this really is the whole underlying driver behind the need for a national ocean policy. We have no statement at the highest level of what our nation's goal is for our oceans. What's the long-term goal here? And so that is really um, what all of us have been working toward over lo these many years and what happily um, President Obama is uh, working on at long last. And, and we are really looking forward to, to being involved to, in in seeing, uh, you know, seeing a draft and working to massage that to, to make a meaningful statement to govern all that we do in terms of the oceans. Well, I thought that I'd um, perhaps uh, close with just a couple of comments about what this all means to California. Um, all of these ideas that these ocean commissions have identified over the um, past several years, um, not a whole lot of action has happened at the federal level, but what's been really exciting has been to see the leadership here in California, driven by many people here in the room today who work in the state government and, um, and in the NGO community. Here in California, uh, conservation leaders have been able to take these concepts and put them to work at the state level, but it's been extremely exciting. So uh, one of the ideas has been the whole concept of establishing uh, an Ocean Protection Council, a sort of a trust fund to implement, uh, to, to, to implement the idea of ocean conservation. Uh, we've had uh, huge investments in coastal protection. We've had, and most importantly, a very progressive law called the Marine Life Protection Act that has established a network of protected marine, marine protected areas and fully protected marine reserves in all of California state waters. This is the, the biggest um, network of protected areas anywhere in the U.S. And we, and you all, California citizens and voters who have supported putting people in office to make these things happen uh, and public-private investments to get them implemented has really made California a leader. So those are just a few of the exciting things happening here in the state that are demonstrating what we mean by proper ocean governance, and uh, we're hoping to take it to the next level uh, in Washington coming up here soon. Thank you. Next, Sarah Chasis, senior attorney at NRDC, who's been a longtime champion of the oceans. There are so many victories that uh, we all owe to, to Sarah and the leadership of her and her organization. She's going to talk about the, the president's uh, proposed national ocean policy and its implications. Thank you. And I want to thank Anne for organizing this panel and uh, to Julie and Michael and Warner for participating and all of you for taking the time to uh, join us this evening. Um, Julie's talked about the major threats to the oceans. Um, it's really incredible that as a nation we don't have a national ocean policy, and the importance and urgency of having one are underscored by the spill in the Gulf of Mexico. I think it speaks to the fact that, you know, things that are out of sight are out of mind, and people are not, we are not exercising the kind of stewardship of our ocean resources uh, that we need to be. And just from a personal standpoint, um, growing up, one of the favorite things uh, my family and I used to do was to go to the ocean on a hot summer day, swim in the ocean water, uh, and then on the way home, <laughs> stop at our favorite seafood restaurant uh, and have a great seafood dinner. Uh, and I know my parents didn't worry about whether the ocean water we, was, we were swimming in you know, was contaminated with pathogens. Uh, or the seafood we were eating, you know, had PCBs or mercury, uh, or was the last of a dying species. But that's really changed. And as I was raising my kids, I was always very aware, you know, were there advisories on uh, swimming advisories because of pollution on the beaches we were going to? Uh, were the fish we were buying at the market contaminated? Um, when, we, when I go out to, to a meal with friends, uh, they always moan and groan because... I'm saying you can't eat this and you can't eat that, and you've got to look at the Monterey Bay Aquarium website and the Seafood Choices and, and their guide. So, you know, it really affects us all in our, in our individual lives. And, you know, we have a Clean Air Act for our air. We have a Clean Water Act to, for our water. We need a national ocean policy for our oceans. 
Julie's mentioned a few of the problems. I mean, our oceans now are 30% more acidic than they were before the industrial age, and it's threatening uh, any creature that forms shells, and that's from you know, the shellfish we love to eat to uh, the pteropods, these little creatures that form, uh, help to form the base of the food chain. We have a dead zone in uh, Mike's part of the world that's larger than the state of Massachusetts due to uh, fertilizer runoff principally from uh, agricultural practices in the Gulf of Mexico, and dead zones occurring increasingly around the world. Julie mentioned uh, overfishing and the depletion of our world's fisheries. 90% of the large ocean fish are gone from the world's oceans because of industrial fishing practices. That's the tunas, the marlins, the swordfish. You know, why should we all care about this? Why is this a priority issue that we should be looking to our government to address? And the reason is we depend on the ocean. It, even when we live, you know, in the middle of the country, it matters, um, and partic- but particularly in our coastal states like California and Florida and along the East Coast. More than half the oxygen we breathe comes from the ocean. The climate we live in is regulated by the ocean. Medicines from the deep help to us deal with the diseases that we face. Uh, the food uh, that is important sustenance for a growing world population A lot of that comes from the ocean. And it's important from an economic standpoint as well. Recent studies have shown that the ocean economy is greater than the entire farm economy in this country. So when we don't have clean water, when we deplete our fish and wildlife, we're having an adverse effect on our economic resources and our local economies. So these are important and critical issues for all of us. Julie served on the Pew Oceans Commission, uh, and and it was really an extraordinary group of people and an extraordinary blueprint that they put out uh, for us to follow as a nation. And the blueprint really languished in many regards for several years. There were sections of it that were adopted in the Magnuson-Stevens Fishery Conservation Act and other statutes, but the overarching recommendation to reform the way we govern our oceans we, didn't, we weren't making progress on. When President Obama came into office, uh, a number of organizations, the Coastal States Organization that Brian is so active in, the Joint Ocean Initiative, which inherited the mantle of the two ocean commissions, the conservation community came together and urged the president to step out on this basic ocean governance issue and the need for a national ocean policy. And last June... Uh, the president responded, and he issued a memorandum calling for um, the development of a national ocean policy, a framework for effective implementation of that policy, the identification of priority issues that needed to be a focus of attention, and a framework for coastal and ocean planning. And I'll come back to that latter point uh, as I go ahead in the, in the talk. So what's happened? Um, Over the last almost 12 months now, uh, an interagency task force chaired by the Council on Environmental Quality, which is housed in the Executive Office of the President, has been overseeing an interagency task force that has been responding to the President's call for recommendations. And we haven't uh, seen the final report. We don't know exactly what the President is going to require, but we're anticipating hopefully very shortly, an announcement that would act on this task force recommendations. So what I'm going to review with you right now is sort of a peek into what we're expecting. So you're you're going to be some of the first to uh, have a sense of where we hope uh, this nation is headed. So the policy that's that's being proposed um, is one that places a lot of emphasis on the need to protect, maintain, and restore the health of our ocean ecosystems. A lot of the statutes that Julie referred to and the individual laws and agency actions deal with each issue individually. You know, you have agencies that work on fisheries, agencies that work on pollution, other agencies that work on habitat protection. But there's nobody really looking out for the whole, for the overall health of the ecosystem. And what's going to 
ensure that that system is going to continue to function and be healthy and provide those climate regulation, food production uh, services that we talked about. So a key focus we expect and hope uh, and are pushing for is a strong emphasis on protecting the integrity of the ocean ecosystems. But it's not a a policy that we expect is going to put off limit our oceans. That's just not in the cards. It's not realistic. It's not uh, what we we want. It's going to emphasize uh, the importance of sustainable and safe use of the oceans. So we expect there's going to be probably good emphasis on the promotion of renewable energy uses of the ocean, wind farms, current and and tidal and wave energy projects and and uses which uh, really build on the sustainable um, uh, aspects of of ocean resources. Uh, There will be certain principles that are expected to guide uh, the exercise of that policy, which are going to be important and are going to call for the consideration of cumulative impacts because you know you can you can look at one set of issues and and one set of activities and in isolation that may not threaten the ecosystem but cumulatively if you have a whole host of uses uh, together they can they can degrade the environment and so I think it's going to place strong emphasis on the need to uh, look at those cumulative impacts and be precautionary in terms of how management is carried out so that if there's uncertainty or a lack of information, that's not going to stop government from taking, taking protective action. So uh, a strong policy statement we're hoping for. So that's number one. Number two, a framework for agency coordination. Uh, the mention of like 20 agencies within the federal government Uh, your eyes start to glaze over when you start to name them. It goes from the Department of State and the Department of Defense to the Department of Transportation to EPA to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and on and on. And there's a lack of coordination among them. So the second thing that this policy framework is going to recommend is a National Ocean Council that would coordinate among the agencies and would hopefully be chaired by the Council on Environmental Quality and possibly co-chaired with the Office of Science and Technology Policy, which is also housed in the White House, and would help to ensure that decision-making is is driven by science and is strongly science-based. The third component uh, we're looking for is a prioritization of key issues that we would be looking for the National Ocean Council and the government to address. And the ones that have been identified so far, I won't mention all of them, but I'll I'll mention three. One is focusing on the Arctic. Uh, With melting sea ice, there's a lot of concern, as many of you know, about increasing activity in the Arctic, from shipping to oil and gas to fishing. And yet there is no effective governance regime for the Arctic. And so one of the priority issues that uh, we expect will be focused on uh, is is a regime for the Arctic. A second is non-point source pollution and land other land-based sources of pollution that affect our oceans. And I think Mike is going to talk hopefully about some of those. But one of them is the garbage patch and all the marine debris we're seeing accumulating in these ocean gyres. There are five ocean gyres, and so far we know at least in two of them, and probably more, the Pacific gyre and the Atlantic gyre, which is in the Sargasso Sea, are accumulating these massive amounts of marine debris, 80% of which derives from land-based sources, and it's heavily plastic. Uh, And so we're expecting to see that as a second area of focus uh, of the National Ocean Council in their initial work. And then a third area is having to do with climate change. And as Julie mentioned, we're, gonna, we're seeing our oceans already suffering from the impacts of both warming, which is affecting our coral reefs, and acidification, which is also affecting our corals and our, and our, sea for, and our shell-forming creatures. And how do we increase the resilience of our oceans in the face of climate change is going to be a focus of, of the Council. The final piece... Uh, of uh, the framework and overall uh, direction we're expecting and hoping for from the president is what we're calling, and it's a very wonky term, we've got to probably find a different name, but is coastal and marine spatial planning. CMSP, for those in the know, 
And what is that? I mean, it sounds, you know, very complex, but it's actually quite simple. If, if you've had experience with land use planning on land, local comprehensive plans that guide local zoning decisions, it's really creating similar comprehensive plans for our ocean resources. And what's envisioned under um, the proposed framework is regional ocean plans extending from shore out to 200 miles for each of the major uh, ocean systems around our country with states and federal government in those regions working together to come up with plans so that rather than just waiting for proposed development projects to come in willy-nilly and being approved on an ad hoc basis, there would be a plan in place in advance to guide uses to appropriate locations and protections established for important ecological areas. So that's in sum the framework. We'll be happy to answer questions about that, but this would be a huge step forward for our nation's oceans uh, if and when the president makes his announcement. We'd like to remind our listening audience that this is the program, the National Oceans Policy with the Commonwealth Club of California. Our speakers tonight are Julie Packard, Sarah Chases, and Michael Thuss. And we will go on with Michael's comments in just a minute. I'd like to remind the audience that we will be collecting question cards. I'll be coming down the aisle and collecting them. So if you have questions for our panel, please write them down and I'll collect them and uh, Warner, uh, our moderator, Warner Chabot, will be asking the questions after our last panel speaks. Again, Michael is the director of the Texas uh, Water Commission, and he's going to talk about the implications of this policy on the people that live in the Gulf of Mexico shoreline. Michael? All right. Thank, thank you all. Um, well, thanks for having me here, and thanks for coming tonight. Uh, uh, I am from Texas, uh, but it's great to be back in San Francisco. Uh, I went to Grant School uh, over on Green Street, or St. Vincent de Paul's also over on Green Street. Uh, my wife, Patty, is from uh, Mountain View, and we got uh, and went to the University of uh, California, or went, went to Santa Clara University, I should say. Um, we got married at Moffett uh, Naval Air Station, so... Uh, uh, I remember fishing uh, at uh, Fort Point uh, off of the Coast Guard Pier and uh, sailing in the bay. So those are, those are really great uh, memories from, from my childhood. Uh, our daughter, who uh, is in fact a glacier guide up in Alaska, uh, was born at Oak Knoll Naval Hospital. I know that's not uh, in existence anymore, but uh, so we, ha- we have great, great, great ties here. She was born when, uh, when I was going to Berkeley for my graduate degree. So uh, it really is great to be back here in the, in the, in the Bay Area. But I am here from Texas, and uh, I'm, I think I'm here to represent those other challenges uh, that, are, that are with respect to uh, ocean policy that were mentioned in the program. Uh, they're linked to the ocean policy, and uh, they're either directly or, or implied, um, that being the coastal states, uh, communities, jobs and uh, the economies and, and, and our, even our uh, inland uh, waterways and our coastal waterways. I'm not sure um, if this is historical planning, as it says on the, on the program, uh, but I'm, I know it, it's an important discussion that, that we all need to have. Uh, and, and, and having a, a national ocean policy is, is long overdue, and, and as a person who's dealt with water resources, uh, for 40 years uh, throughout the country and, and, and overseas, I know it's, it's, it's very important. Um, universally, uh, and not just in Texas, but water is life. Um, and, and, but change is tough, uh, even when your life's at stake. Um, how, about, how you go about change uh, is, is pretty important, and, and that's kind of my message tonight. Um, as a Gulf Coast resident, of course, uh, the oil spill is on everybody's mind. And if you've seen the uh, news accounts, you know as much as I do. Um, I did experience beaches covered in tar balls and, and oil and uh, with uh, 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 affecting wildlife and so forth. But actually, it was in the Mediterranean at uh, Caesarea. Uh, they, they have the same problems overseas that, that we sometimes have here. And I know and that experience was not pleasant at all. Um, I've also restored beaches along uh, the, the Mississippi coast and uh, uh, in, in Florida, 
uh, and, and that's a very tough uh, 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 project to do and, and, and very costly. Um, I worked in Louisiana uh, on the Coastal Wetlands Restoration Program and know how critical those sensitive areas are. Um, did, did you know that 60% that of, uh, over 60% of the oil, uh, heating oil, for the East Coast comes into one place in Louisiana, one, one central point where the, the, the oil is offloaded and goes for the East Coast, of the, for the entire East Coast of the United States. And the extensive uh, uh, holdings of the oil companies in, in Louisiana is, is absolutely amazing. Um, the one thing I was surprised about about this oil spill and that I really hadn't pictured and put in my mind was that um, uh, I deal in large volumes of water, uh, large volumes, and they're called acre feet. Right? So an acre, feet, an acre foot is a third of a million gallons third of a million gallons. So you say, well what, well, what is that really? Well, if you take Candlestick Park, the football field, and you cover that with one foot of liquid, uh, that's an acre foot. So one foot deep, size of a football field, Candlestick Park. So if we've had 210, 240,000 gallons of leakage a day over the last 20 days, that's four to five million gallons. That would mean that Candlestick Park would be about 10 feet deep in oil, okay, 10 feet deep. Now, to me, in volumes, you know, that's really not very much because take Candlestick Park out and put it in the bay, right? You know, how much of a volume is that in the bay? Now take it and go 50 miles out. And, and my point there is, with that is that think of the devastation and the, the catastrophic things that are happening over that, what I would consider a very small volume of oil that, that's leaking out of, out of those wells. So obviously something needs to really be done to control the development of oil off of our coast. I mean, with that small of a volume uh, that, that would do that devastation. Um, uh, uh, let's see, I have to give you my qualifications qualification statement, not that I'm qualified to talk about this, but uh, so you'll, you, you'll know uh, uh, where I'm coming from. Uh, I was elected, I'm an elected director of the Texas Water Conservation Association. We are similar to your California Association of Water Agencies, if you're familiar with that. We, um, uh, our TWCA associations are utility districts, municipal utilities, water supply districts, river authorities, uh, subsidence districts, uh, flood control districts, uh, drainage districts, irrigation districts. Uh, we also, uh, our members are ports and harbors. Uh, so we, we, we have a website, and you can look us up on that. Um, and and uh, we're pretty biased and, and, and have a lot of biases with, re, with respect to just about everything you can think of. Uh, we do have policy statements. Uh, when, I, when I talk about, most of my views tonight are my own personal ones. Uh, and if there is a policy statement that, that, that comes from the association, I'll, 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 let, you, I'll let you know what, what that one is. I think it's, it's easier for you. I think uh, you ought to know that uh, I'm a former military person and I'm a professional engineer, so uh, you all know that I'm, I'm only capable of linear thinking and that, uh, <laughs> and, and that I really do like uh, uh, doing things over talking about them. So, so those, those are my biases. Um, and finally, our family did raise money for Mr. Obama, and I voted for him, which I don't mention very much in Texas, if you can, <laughs> if you can understand that. Okay. Uh, the last time I was at the White House Council on Environmental Quality, it was in 1995, and I had been summoned to discuss the status of the Missouri River Operating Manual. We were rewriting the manual for how we were going to operate the river. Uh, uh, that the, the infrastructure on the on the river uh, w was developed for uh, and funded by Congress and local partners for flood damage reduction, uh, water supply, hydropower, navigation, and even recreation and uh, environmental sustainability. Um, the rewrite that we were proposing slightly raised the priority of environmental protection and uh, uh, and encouraged a better habitat for endangered species. Uh, I had just finished 10 public meetings from Helena 
to New Orleans discussing these proposed changes. Uh, I had to go and brief uh, the uh, uh, Council on Environmental Quality on the results of these. 495 people testified. I know because I wrote it down in a little yellow book that I still have today, uh, including governors from some states. Uh, unfortunately, 490 were against any change. Uh, the majority of those that testified were from, from recreation, navigation, and, power, and the power industries, and there were some citizens who just didn't want to see any changes at all. Five people supported the changes. Um, now, immediately after issuing my report to the Environmental Council, uh, I, I was summoned over to Congress where I gave the same report to 14 state delegations who are on, on the Missouri River. And I also had to report out to 27 Indian tribes, uh, and their only interest in this really was, was how, getting the water that they were promised under the Winter's Doctrine. Uh, essentially, that's enough water to sustain their culture on their reservation, whatever that really means. Um, and so these, these are two points that I, that I really wanted to make, and I'm sure, sure you know them already. There's a real dichotomy and a real hard-nosed negotiating between Congress and any administration. Those in the administration who want to make policy shouldn't forget that it's Congress who authorizes and appropriates federal funds. Uh, nowadays, a lot of any administration that wants to spend money and develop policies, those are dictated by the Office of Management and Budget. Um, industries and special interest groups lobby in Washington uh, for a lot of things, and they often do it without regard to the people who are impacted at the local level. Uh, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm for change, for good planning, and for good public policy based on science formulated through our political system. But you have to realize that the people closest to the problems, mostly states and certainly local areas, don't participate in that arena or even know what's going on. Uh, for example, I doubt many except California and Florida and Texas and few others care much about the review of the principles and guidelines that are, that's currently going on at the federal level. But that discussion is ongoing now, and it greatly impacts how states meet their water needs, their water resources needs in the future. It's the first real chance in the last 25 years to have a change, but that change is going to set the power structure for many years to come. Um, while, I'm, while I was setting up negotiations between the states of Alabama, Georgia, and Fl Florida over the Chattahoochee, Apalachicola, and Flint river flows, I, was at, I asked if I could establish a federal, federally-sponsored public participation program within each state to get public opinion from their citizens on this matter. I was politely told by the governors of all three states that each state would, sit, would let me know what their citizens' concerns were and what the citizens wanted. This also uh, occurred in the Missouri Basin. Again, states were closest to, and I learned from that, that the states were closest to the needs and wants of their citizens and had the responsibility and authority to represent those needs and wants. Uh, now we're looking at a federal policy regarding our oceans and Great Lakes, our coasts, and to some extent our waterways. Um, by the way, and I've learned this o over the years, that when an administration, any administration, wants to do master planning, as, as Sarah mentioned, um, uh, the veterans in that business, those are code words for we're probably going to take something away from you. Uh, if it's in the water resources business, you have to be careful because it means that the water, if you're going to do basin-wide water management, it means that the water-rich states are going to give water to the water-poor states. So th those are some important uh, differences. Um, my time is almost up, and I just want to talk about one more thing, and, and that's state governments. State governments are different. In, in Texas, uh, our governor really doesn't have much power. Uh, can veto bills. The state legislature does most of the work. And uh, uh, the way the state does the water resources planning is, is from the ground up rather than from state down. We have regions, and the regions put together water plans, and, they, and the water plans are expected to take care of environmental needs, recreational needs, uh, power generation needs, domestic water needs for the next 50 years. Those are integrated into a state plan, and the state plan is then blessed. You don't get federal funds or state funds in order to build your plans unless your plan is in the state plan. Um, the reason Texas does that is because it's a, prop, it's a, uh, it's a traditional property rights state, and it thinks that the, the most important people that need to be protected 
are the local citizens and the regional folks and the people who have the responsibility of doing that and are accountable to the to the to the uh, citizens are the elected officials so they they try to put accountability and responsibility in 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 the same place um i'll stop with that um uh i think it's very it's it's we need it we need an ocean policy we need to be careful about how we go about putting it together uh states are are very important california has taken a lead in many of these issues the other gulf coast states uh mississippi alabama georgia florida uh uh need need to be involved in in the planning need to be involved in the process uh because they're the ones who are responsible for taking care of the uh, uh, the, the local people, their citizens, uh, and they need to be given that opportunity in order in order to do that. Thank you very much. We have a lot more questions than we have time, so I'm going to ask each. Uh, I'll direct your question to one person and ask you to try to quickly answer. And if someone else wants to jump in, go ahead. But it's not necessary. Uh, Sarah. How could a national ocean policy have prevented the disastrous oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico? I think that's Julie's question. (laughs) I think that if we had a policy that really forced agencies to consider how the activities they permit affect other uses of the ocean and of the coast, that it would... Help. I don't think it would have, you know, prevent, you know, necessarily, but I think it would ensure that you can't have the Interior Department, which leases for uh, offshore lands for oil development, going off on its own without having to consult and consider the impacts on the fishing community, the coastal wetlands, the the economies of of the coastal state. So uh, I think it would have really, it would help uh, ensure a better result in that respect. Michael, did you did you? Well, I just wanted to add that I think it it, it would have it would have caused the uh, uh, industry to go through a, a, a an entirely different regulatory process and an entirely different construction process. Uh, our technology always fails. I mean, it's Murphy's law: if it can break, it will, or if it won't work, it won't work. Uh, as an engineer who builds things uh, uh, for a living uh, and has been involved in heavy construction, uh, you, you know. <laughs> The designs have to be reviewed properly, and the designs have to be installed properly, and, and, and things have to, in that type of environment, they have to work. It's the same as with a water system. And so uh, uh, I think that the entire design and construction phase of that would have been handled differently if we'd have had a, uh, a national policy that, uh, that put an agency really in charge of that uh, to make sure that those things were, in fact, happened. Uh, look at the dam industry. The Corps of Engineers Bureau of Reclamation builds dams. We cannot afford to have a dam fail, and uh, and uh, there have been there have been a couple of dam failures in the, in, the, in in my lifetime, but but not very not very many that were that were regulated, designed, and built uh, by the by the federal government participation. Yeah. So it's, I think it's really important to have to have that as part of a policy. Julie, if you had to list the single thing that you think is the biggest threat to the oceans around the United States of America, what would you say it is? Well, that was a tough question, yeah. but um, I've spent a lot of my time at the aquarium focusing on ending overfishing as something that we all need to be involved with, but I have to say if, if uh, I had to pick the biggest, the biggest issue with the biggest impact, it would be global climate change because um, it affects everything on the entire planet and um, and because the effects are really extremely systemic and people really focus on the warming aspect and sea level rise those are the things that we you know hear most about species will be able to move around to accommodate as on land you read about well you know gets too warm for the birds they'll move up higher on the mountain until eventually oops you know there's nothing up there so i mean we're facing a lot of extinctions for sure but you know in the ocean being in you know aqueous medium things will be able to adjust to a certain extent but the um the whole acidification issue is just extremely serious because it affects basic 
physiological processes that are common to all life, you know, along with this shell building issue that Sarah mentioned. So that would uh, be at the top of my top of my list. Michael, what can the average person do? Well, uh, I think that the, the average person, you know, it, it, from our perspective in Texas, uh, what we want or what what we pursue is is to get the regional uh, citizens involved in the long-range water resources and land use planning in the state Uh, and to do that they stay involved with their local officials because the local officials uh, as uh, Julie said are the ones who are elected you know, and represent us, and they're the, they're the ones who are directly accountable for what what we you know what happens uh, is in, in in Texas. And so, uh, individuals, you know, be educated, uh, vote for the right folks, uh, make them accountable for what uh, what need what needs to be done. Um, uh, I'm, I hope that that uh, Good. could could I address that issue about what what our biggest issue i think in the in the gulf okay but i asked to be brief because i got a lot of questions no no go go ahead all right yeah it the 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 one uh uh issue in the gulf that that's the biggest threat of course is the dead zones and and that uh, comes from fertilizer runoff and chemical runoff you know so comes from way upstream uh and so it's not just a matter of something that happens in the ocean but it's something that that's occurring up, upstream, and then that, that needs to be uh, needs to be controlled. And and that's one of the issues that Texas is focusing on right now. What's what's the quality and quantity of waters that need to go into our bays and estuaries? Sarah, what do you think is the biggest obstacle to us actually achieving this ocean policy that is going to be proposed? I think it's a public awareness or lack of awareness of what's happening in the oceans, how it connects to people's lives, why it's important. It's this out of sight, out of mind element. So I think one of our huge challenges is, you know, con- you know, making people understand how much we depend on the oceans, what a critical uh, living resource it is. And the other aspect is I think people think there's this vast open space out there and what's really interesting is when you see maps of all the activities that are actually occurring in the oceans I mean there's a huge amount going on you've got shipping lanes you've got fishing you've got uh, offshore oil and gas in the Gulf I have a map somewhere I can show anyone who's interested afterwards the number of oil wells in the Gulf of Mexico it's unbelievable Uh, in the east coast just to bring a little of the East Coast to the West Coast, um, in the Mid-Atlantic region off the the New York, New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland coast, now we're facing proposals for eight or ten large-scale wind offshore wind farms. We've got proposals for several liquefied natural gas terminals. We've got a proposal, although hopefully maybe it's off the books, but still uh, possible to to drill for oil. Uh, from Delaware all the way down to Florida. We've got also a proposal to um, uh, put uh, carb to sequester carbon underneath the seafloor. So, and then we have migrating whales. We have, you know, a huge amount of ocean-rich ocean life and these great submarine canyons, uh, which are areas of upwelling and uh, birds and whales. And so you've got all this going on in the ocean. And I think a lot for a lot of people they just don't realize that and are we going to have this kind of ocean sprawl and you know conflicting uses or are we going to make sense of it and try to really make sure we we plan smartly and protect uh the critical resources that we all depend on julie you're a trustee at the packard foundation that is a leader in supporting a wide variety of programs to do ocean conservation policy what gives you hope? Give us an example of one or two things that you think are occurring that demonstrate the type of uh, leadership and, and progressive planning that is occurring now to protect the oceans. 
Well, one of the things that our foundation's made a big investment in is uh, improving fisheries management, but we've taken kind of a unique approach. It hasn't been so much the policy approach. In the past decade, we really worked on a market-based approach, and a lot of you are probably familiar with the Aquarium Seafood Watch program. That's sort of uh, just one piece of a whole strategy to have consumers vote with their wallets and tell companies, tell businesses, tell their restaurants, tell chefs, whatever, um, that they only want to eat f- seafood from sustainable sources. This little idea of consumer action has really reaped some huge impact in the past few years, and I'm really thrilled to see this happening. We have now, if you look at the top retailers and the top food service companies, In the U.S., many of them have made very important commitments to sustainability, where they now are committed to only sourcing their seafood from sustainable sources. Programs like that and also the eco-labeling program, the Marine Stewardship Council, it's called, um, are are really transforming um, from a business side uh, how fishing is done. So that, coupled with policy change, which is the ultimate solution, of course, uh, I, I really am feeling hopeful about it, but it's kind of a new approach, and it's something that uh, has, has really worked out well. And, and all of you in the room and everyone you know that uses the Seafood Watch card and that talks about seafood and, and realizes this is the last wildlife that we're eating in our modern society here, you've got to think about that. Um, it's, it's, it's something that I think is very exciting, and I hope we can keep that moving. Question for any of them. Um, would you comment on the role of high technology in ocean policy? How can the current advances in technology improve our ability to better plan for and manage our oceans? Anyone? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll quickly, I think the, uh, the, the role of the satellite positioning systems and so forth so that you can, in fact, map and uh, uh, the remote sensing. Uh, technologies are, are very, uh, very uh, uh, hopeful. I'm hopeful that those will be very beneficial to the to some, that's just a couple real quick. Julie? If, if I could mention um, the Ambari Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, which some, some of the audience may be familiar with, um, is a research institute in Monterey Bay funded by the Packard Foundation. And we develop, we, we focus on developing new technologies for ocean exploration. And actually, as we speak, our team is being asked to deploy some of our really advanced technology to see if we can help out with um, the, the Gulf situation. And I guess I would just say that the new technologies being developed in terms of not only remote sensing is one, but also um, underwater robotic vehicles, autonomous underwater vehicles that are untethered and are just programmed to go out and run a mission and take water quality samples and, and examine what's really going on down there. The, the technology that's being developed, I think, you know, it needs a bigger investment, but I, I think it's only going to get better, but that would be, you know, what's required is to make sure that industry, that the companies are required to use the most advanced technology and, you know, have safeguards and oversight and observers, et cetera, et cetera. Can I just jump in on on sort of the opposite side where we aren't seeing the technological improvements, and that is on oil spill containment and cleanup. And, you know, Compared to 20 years ago when the Exxon Valdez spill occurred, we have not seen the kind of breakthroughs in technology that we really need in this area. So one of the challenges is how do we really get that kind of improvement um, in in the oil spill containment and cleanup? And if uh, there's so much concern about opening up the Arctic to oil development because, you know, it's under ice for half the year before the ice forms you've got broken ice conditions and also after we don't have the oil spill containment and cleanup technology to deal with that can we really go forward with uh, drilling up there if the industry weren't allowed to go into these areas and until they could show they actually had the technology to deal with it you can bet you'd see those advances in the technology but that's not the way our current policy is structured. So we have to think about what are the policy um, drivers that will help in some of these areas where we're really lagging uh, from a technological standpoint. Who are the, the heroes, the leaders in the United States that are really staking out the positions uh, for ocean policy? Julie Packer. <laughs> Sarah Chases. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I, I guess I, I, I jump into that and say that um, from my own perspective, you know, 20 years ago, foundations like ours funded um, NGOs and conservation organizations for a lot of environmental issues, but all of that work was land-based. I mean, back in the day, the oceans were not even on the screen of the major environmental organizations in the U.S. or anywhere else. And I'm here to say that, you know, thanks in, in part to, you know, boards with interests like ours and, and a growing number of funders that now realize, you know, most of the planet is covered by ocean, uh, and therefore we need to address a, a bigger percentage of our funding and our interest and, and uh, expertise to, to, to the ocean issues, that's, that's really changing. I mean, today all the major NGOs have... Uh, very effective and important ocean programs, and they each are kind of, you know, they're collaborating, they're each working on certain areas of expertise, be it policy, be it the wildlife protection angle, marine protected areas. There's a lot of interventions that need to be in play here, and um, I, you know, I think, I mean, I couldn't identify one leader, but I would say anyone interested in and uh, supporting, you know, these changes uh, would would do well to go online and, and check out the the major NGO players. Uh, and and again, just to underscore what Michael was saying, don't underestimate the the importance of getting involved locally because those land use decisions that is where it all starts. I totally agree with what he said. It's sort of the last thing that any of us want to do. We it's much easier for us to change out a light bulb or you know, use our seafood watch card. Those, those individual actions are very important. But in the end, you know, what we really need to do is vote for the right people and show up at those public hearings, you know, dreaded as they are, and engage and pressure and make people do, do that. And a good way for you to do that if you're really, you know, too lazy to do it, which most people are, is support an NGO that is showing up, like many of those in the room here, um, and, and, and pressure your representatives to do the right thing. Our final question is the magic wand question. If you had a magic wand and could do one thing, one single thing that would help restore the oceans, what would it be? One thing? Well, well I'll jump on it first. Um, what, what we found in water conservation was education. Uh, you, you teach the young, the young children, and then they teach the parents. Uh, that your, your daughter's telling you, Dad, turn the water off while you're brushing your teeth. You know, save save the water. So ed- education. Uh, we do have two uh, two young men from San, uh, San Mateo College here, and uh, it's great to see them here because uh, I'm sure their professor made them come. But <laughs> but at, at least you know they're interested, and 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 they're the they're my hope. They're the ones who will really take this back and be the leaders in the, in the future to, to 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 take us to where we need to go. I'm going to have two, Warner. Go ahead. You'll have to come challenge me if, if you want to stop me. But uh, ending, over, ending over fishing, uh, which is one of the most pernicious practices there is, and then creating around our country a network of protected areas. We have on the land networks of wildlife refuges, parks, seashores. We need a network of protected areas around our country's shores. Julie? Well, I guess I'm, I, I'm fond of saying when I started working on the Monterey Bay Aquarium, we thought the most challenging species there were the live animals in the water, the, the sea stars and the fishes and everything. And we quickly realized after opening the most challenging species in our aquarium are the nearly 2 million humans that come through our halls every year. <laughs> and so if I could wave a magic wand, I'd have us understand the human psyche, what motivates us, what, what, <laughs> what's at the base of our complacency about you know, taking action to do what we believe in our hearts to be the right thing on behalf of our kids and our grandkids and the future of our uh, support system here on Earth. Uh, and if I had a wish, I wish we had more time to sit here and discuss. But I want to leave you with some uh, high note, perhaps. Outside, you'll find uh, uh, Julie's Seafood Watch. These, these are all informations that, uh, information that you can take that's free. Uh, we also have for you Acid Test, which is an excellent documentary on the acidification of the oceans. 
These are available. Take them. Give them to friends. Give them to young people. Take them to the College of San Mateo, please. Uh, but be, be sure and pick these up. These are all things that we have for you here tonight. And finally, an excellent discussion of America's underwater parks. So, again, these are freebies. Play, take them with you, read them, pass them along, and see if we can't build even more momentum about protecting our national oceans. Um, our thanks to Julie Packard, Sherrod Chases, and Michael Thuss for our panel tonight on the national uh, oceans policy. We're really grateful that they came. It has been a distinguished panel, and it really means a lot to us to have them here. We also want to thank our audience as well as those who are listening. Remember, this is going to be broadcast on May 20th, 7 p.m., KR. CB in the Bay Area. And for now, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California commemorating its 107th year of public discourse is adjourned. Thank you for coming.